Right, so tonight we are going to be, there's not really a particular scripture passage that I, that I want you to open to, but you'll notice in the packet that you got, hopefully when you came in, um, there's a soon-to-be-married couple coming in right now. August 10th is their wedding day, so y'all be sure to congratulate them. That made it to the recording too, so everybody is, yeah, there you go, all right. Do what? August is a good month. That's right. So there you go. Um, <laughs> I hope I embarrassed y'all a lot. Um, yeah. <laughs> no, no. Do what? <laughs> Didn't embarrass me. No, no. Yeah, exactly. Um, okay. So w- there's not a particular passage that I want you to open to, but if you notice in the packet that I've given to you, Uh, There's quite a few verses than normal, Um, and the reason is because we're kind of going to be all over the map tonight a little bit because the subject that we're dealing with is going to be a little bit more challenging than probably usually it is um, in the sense that we're dealing, and we're dealing with a topic that's that's just a slight bit different than what we've been doing for the last um, few weeks because as we get to in our study now, The conquest of the promised land, where Joshua and the children of Israel are on the verge of making it into the promised land, there are some considerations that we've got to to address before we ever get to the story itself. We all are at least somewhat familiar with what's about to happen, that the children of Israel are going to walk into the promised land, and there is going to be quite quite a bit of bloodshed that takes place. And inevitably, when you talk about the conquest, particularly in this day and age, there's a lot of questions that the conquest typically brings out of people. So I'm, you know, I was thinking about Shannon as you're talking about your atheist friend that you're walking with. Um, that you know, you have these conversations, and they're pretty knowledgeable about the Bible, especially if they've been, I don't know, in the South for any period of time. You kind of kind of get indoctrinated by the culture itself that's kind of, uh, it has this sort of Bible feel to it much more so than, than in the North. And, um, and when that happens, you, you end up getting these kinds of questions that sometimes you don't really know how to answer. Like, how can God allow people to walk into a land and, where people are already living and just slaughter a whole bunch of people right there in the land that are living there? How, how is that How is that possible? How can you say to me that you, what you believe, and when we read the book of Joshua, that what you believe right there is any different than what the Muslims are saying that they're doing right now? You know, you've seen the video on September 11, 2001, as the planes come crashing into the World Trade Towers. How is that any different than Joshua walking into the Promised Land? So these questions are challenging. They're, they're difficult. We don't live in the age that we used to live in, or I don't know if I ever lived in that age, but m- many of you probably did. Um, that age where people generally thought the Bible was credible, even if they didn't know it, like the back of their hand, they thought it was credible, and they thought you should be in church on Sunday morning. And they probably felt bad for not being there. You know, I don't live in that age anymore. And we could sit around and gripe about it, or we could just move on and realize this is the ministry God's given to us and dig down deep and learn what is going on in the book of Joshua and how do we understand it. So that's mostly where we're going to be tonight, unpacking all of those kinds of things. Just as a review, before we go into that, remember we're talking about in terms of timeline, somewhere between the years 1406 and 1399 B.C., Joshua and the children of Israel are going to be moving into the promised land. Now, we said, I said last week that that is what's considered by scholars to be the early date. Most, uh, most what, mostly what you'll find is that conservative scholarship leans on that date, whereas uh, generally, generally speaking, more liberal scholarship tends to lean on the later date, which would be 200 years uh, after what we're saying it is. And mostly the reason for that is because those same scholars put the Exodus in different places. And so if you put the Exodus in different places, well, then the the conquest of the Promised Land has to be in different places. But we're saying somewhere between the years 1406 and 1399 is the conquest of the Promised Land as Joshua and the children of Israel move in. 
The Egyptians had, at the time, political control over the promised land, and most of the kings in the area, in the, in the promised land, were vassals or were servants paying tribute to Egypt, requiring help from Egypt from time to time. Um, and we talked about last week how there was, uh, there, we have some archaeological evidence of kings writing back to Egypt and asking them for help because there's marauders and all kinds of uh, just nastiness and filth throughout the land of Canaan to which Egypt seems to not be uh, very interested. Now, the, the, the political powers, the powerful uh, kingdoms in the Mesopotamian region at the time were preoccupied with each other, trying to keep each other in check. And no one really wanted to walk into the promised land and try to take it for fear that Egypt might come in and just drive over them like a Mack truck over a Coke can. And so they didn't try it. They didn't move into the promised land. But what really happened was that Egypt didn't really care at all about foreign policy. So under the reign of Amenhotep III and Amenhotep IV, they just lost interest altogether about any place outside of Egypt. And so what happens is you've got countries that are concerned with each other and don't want to tick off Egypt, so they don't want to move into the land of Canaan. You have Egypt, who, unbeknownst to them, is unconcerned with uh, Canaan, it seems unconcerned anyway, and unconcerned with anything outside of their own borders. And so basically, no one's watching the promised land is what that amounts to. And so about this time, uh, Joshua and the children of Israel are going to march in and going to take control of the promised land, and all they really have to fight or deal with at the time are mostly the city-states that are inside the promised land. Does all that make sense? Whose rule are, are, are who is who under? In Canaan? Well, they're, they're individual city-states. So imagine some place like the size of, of the EBC campus, six acres roughly, that would be uh, Jericho, okay? And so Jericho has, uh, a, they're under a ruler, and uh, they'll have a king of that little city-state, but no, there's no nation to speak of. It's just, just that little city. And, um, and it, it's a conglomeration of many different uh, people groups, and, uh, you know, Amalekites and all kinds of ites and bites are going to be living in that city, and there's going to be one king that's sort of over them. Um, and, but that's it. They're not, they're not united. But that king owes tribute back to Egypt. Egypt owns that land, and they're more vassals. So what that kind of means, just to get a, get a sketch of what that would look like, is, um, you know, probably, I don't know if this is really right in terms of modern-day politics, but probably something similar to like a Puerto Rico or Guam, where they're kind of like territories of, of the U.S., but, but they're not really... They're not United States citizens. They're not, they're not Americans. Does that, that make sense? I'm not trying to be combustible or anything like that or talking talk about any other, other group of people. Just saying that something like that, where there's some allegiance, some affiliation that they owe back to Egypt, and most of that's going to be money at some point, tax money and things like that, that is going to be paid back to Egypt. And if you got out of line, Egypt could walk back in and just you know, mow over you if they wanted to. But there's no real nationhood to, to speak of. They're not citizens of Egypt or anything like that. Yeah. Any other questions like that before we get, dive into the lesson? Okay. Um, there are, I think, very few things in the Bible that are quite as challenging and troubling to modern readers as this particular section that we're looking at in, or, or this particular, uh, yeah, section of the Israel's history. It's, it's this um, walking into the promised land and, and doing away with a group of people uh, presents a, a really strong challenge, um, I think, to, the, the, to most people in our culture today. And especially when, when you start thinking about um, problems that people are seeing now, um, that we're voicing frustration about. Um, you always hear the slavery and racism talk come up, especially now in the political climate that we live in. Um, these are so frequently brought up. Um, there's patriarchy, uh, men dominating women. You see a lot of this 
in the conquest of the land of Canaan. Uh, so there's, there's a lot of these things that are just supercharged, particularly with the, cli- the climate that we live in. But the conquest itself raises tons of historical and theological questions. The historical questions are questions like, did it really happen? Did this really take place? I mean, when you go back into archaeology, we talked about last week that as far as archaeology is concerned, there's not a ton of archaeological evidence for the children of Israel marching in and burning things to the ground and all of that kind of stuff that you would typically find. At least we haven't found that yet. A professor of mine uh, once said that archaeology is a friend of the Bible. And I think that's true, that uh, after, after a while we don't, well, no, nah, that didn't happen, surely. And then all of a sudden we kick over a rock and we're like, oh, look at that, it did happen. Um, so, uh, so we haven't found it yet, but, um, but there's all kinds of questions like that. And so then it brings up historical questions, did it really happen? Plus, when you have the theological questions, what kind of God would do this and allow this kind of thing, much less command this kind of thing from his people, Um, then it puts Christians, a lot of Christians, in a position where they really would rather just kind of say, eh, it probably didn't happen, right? And so there's, if there's, if you don't feel that pressure now, we will feel that pressure uh, in the days and years to come. And so I'm sure uh, some that work in probably university setting and places like that, it would be real convenient if, lo and behold, we found out, oh, look at that, the book of Joshua wasn't even in the original text, right? Like, that would be a lot more convenient, I'm sure, than having to explain all of this to, um, to people who are asking these kinds of questions. Um, but the current climate um, that we live in challenges Christians and uh, says things like, I don't, I don't think I put attributed the quote here that I've got in your packet, but it's Richard Dawkins was the one that said this. Joshua's destruction of Jericho is morally indistinguishable from Hitler's invasion of Poland or Saddam Hussein's massacres of the Kurds and the Marsh Arabs. So if you can think, imagine just for a second, the leading atheist in the world is Richard Dawkins right now. The, the atheist that most atheists are listening to is Richard Dawkins. And, the, and he's the one making these claims about Christianity and telling mass amounts of people that uh, Joshua's destruction of Jericho is morally indistinguishable from Hitler's campaigns in World War II. So these are the kinds of things that are going on in our culture. Now, with that, how do we begin to even understand what's happening and how is it really justifiable? So imagine yourself tonight, like if, we, if you're just engaging with a friend of yours who is, um, who, is a, who is not a believer, how do you answer these kinds of questions? What do you say to these objections? Well, first, we have to understand the premise that's kind of beginning all of this. Um, the Israelites were told by God to basically practice, uh, I'm going to give you a Hebrew word here, here it is, charim. All right, in the back of your throat, <laughs> like you're hawking up a loogie, okay? Harim, <laughs> all right? Harim um, is a word which means devoted to destruction. It can also mean banned. It can mean uh, devoted to God. But the idea is you are not supposed to touch it. It is God's. You are dedicating that completely to God. What that meant for the children of Israel as they walked into the promised land, that the, all of the things that God told them was to be harimed, all right, is to be burnt to the ground completely. They're not to leave one trace of anything that is devoted to God and or slash banned. You're not to touch it. That is mine. You're to leave that for me. So in most cases where there's, there's this going on, the children of Israel are allowed to take the gold and the silver and the bronze, and they're allowed to keep that for themselves to go into the treasury. But then the rest of the things, which includes people, all people, livestock and everything, is to be gathered up together, killed and burned to the ground completely, totally dedicated to God. This is the kind of thing that we're, we're talking about. This is a very serious thing that they're charged with doing, 
march into the promised land and do this. And you can kind of see where people would have questions about this kind of behavior. Um, if you'll look at Deuteronomy uh, 7, uh, 26, I didn't, uh, you'll have to turn there in your Bible. I did not put that in our packet for whatever reason. I was not paying attention. Deuteronomy uh, chapter 7, verse 26. I'll, I'll get it when I get there. Uh, and you shall not bring an abominable thing into your house and become devoted to destruction like it. You shall utterly detest and abhor it, for it is devoted to destruction. What is the fear going on there? What's the fear in that verse? I'll read it again. And you shall not bring an abominable thing into your house and become devoted to destruction like it. You shall utterly detest and abhor it, for it is devoted to destruction. Yeah, um, so no other gods before me. There's, there's that going on, but there's, there's, a, there's a... Yeah, it's contagious. That when you bring it in, uh, it will corrupt you. And then what will you be? You'll be banned. You'll be devoted to destruction. You'll have to be killed. What it will do, these things will morally corrupt the people of God. This is the fear, or this is, the, um, com- this is where the command from the Lord comes from. And so they're just supposed to devote everything to destruction that, that uh, He tells them to. Okay. All right. Um, now, we have to, as we think about how we respond to this, it's important that we lay some foundational understanding. So the first thing that we have to understand is that we have to recognize um, that what happens in the land of Canaan is horrid. I mean, this is not a time to put our head in the sand and say, it's not that bad, you're over... You're overblowing it. No, it's, it's horrid. It's a tragedy. Jo- the book of Joshua is supposed to be weighty. When you see the amount of destruction that the children of Israel are going to have to inflict on other people, the amount of sin that is run rampant throughout the land, it's a tragedy. It's supposed to be horrid. Uh, the amount of violence and bloodshed is not good. And I don't think it's presented in a positive way. It's not like a happy book. I mean, like most of the rest of the books of the Bible are not. You know, but it's not something that's really lighthearted. So it is horrid. And so we do need to understand that this is the case and that there are going to be people that don't understand it as they come in contact with it. And we should really be sympathetic about that. So that's one thing we have to understand going into it. The second thing that we have to understand or we have to do is we have to determine the feeling with which we hope to leave the text. All right. Let me explain what I mean there. If you're hoping tonight that what I'm going to reveal, you know, by, I don't know, exegeting the Hebrew text is that you're going to walk out with a Disney story that in the end, really, if you were to really read this in the original languages, that when you would walk out, oh, it it all ends really happily. So let me just tell you what it really, if that's what you're expecting out of the text, you're sorely mistaken. That's not going to happen. What you're going to end up with is something that's very hard to wrap your mind around, very hard to understand, very hard to wrestle with. You're going to end up with a lot of, we have to trust that God knows what he's doing. There's going to be a lot of that. There's also some really good things that we need to understand about it, but I think that's one thing that we have to get down is what am I expecting to get out of this? What do I want to, to know about the conquest um, in the promised land? So that's, that's certainly another thing. Um, third is that we need to determine, as we have conversations like this, the person and the worldview to which we, uh, we're tr- hoping to respond. Are we talking to a Christian who needs encouragement to follow the Lord and to trust in His goodness? And they're looking back in the book of Joshua and they're going, well, how can I possibly do that? Look at what the Lord did to these people. Is that the audience that we're talking to? Are we talking to an atheist who is dead set on 
you're just like the, you're just like Muslims today who are who are killing people. I mean, you, it just happened further back in your history. Well, they're also a newer religion than you are. I've heard this argument literally. Well, Christianity slash Judaism has been around for. 3,500 years, Islam has been around for 600, or it was uh, initiated in 600 AD, and so, you know, give them another 1,000, 2,000 years, and they'll be about where the Jews and Christians are today, right? So, um, so you're dealing with these kind of arguments, and so you have to determine the person and the worldview that I'm, I'm talking to, what kind of response is required, and then it's also going to challenge us, I think, to not hopefully it will challenge us, and we have to be willing to change our assumptions about God, not from what the culture says, but from what the Bible actually says about Him. So the question is, are we reading our Bibles rightly? The, sometimes we, um, especially you'll hear this a lot in the, in the culture around us, is that the idea is we're all kind of on the same boat and in the end, we're all going to die, but we're all moving in the same direction. And you're going to see when you get to heaven or whatever is waiting on the other side, then God's going to come up to all of us and he's just going to give us a big warm hug and everything's going to be just nice. You've heard this, at least in some capacity, right? This means yes. Yep. Okay. Um, so, you know, th- this is the kind of, of, of culture we're in and all where we need to be is we need to actually read our Bibles so that the God that we're presenting to people is the actual God that they're going to find in the scriptures. Because my fear is that the people that believe that is going to be true about them, regardless of what they do, how they live, or what they believe. My fear is that they got that from us. I kind of suspect they did. I think there was a lot of, or there has been a lot of preaching that was very light, where we didn't dig down into what is the Bible actually telling us about who God is and who we are? And so as a result, what do we present to everyone else? Pretty light stuff. And so what they assume is that God's going to give us a big bro hug whenever we get up there or something, or that he's my, the big man upstairs, or that he's my homeboy. And so we end up with that kind of garbage going on. So we need to be willing to change our assumptions about who God is based on what we discover to be true about him in the scriptures. Now let's get into it. Um, As creator of the world, we have to begin with this premise. I think this is one of the most, this is probably the most important premise to begin with, period. As creator of the world and everything in it, God has the right to do with humanity Whatever he pleases. We have to begin there. As creator, he has the right to do with humanity whatever he pleases. Um, somebody read out loud uh, Psalm 24, 1. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. Psalm 50, verse 10. Psalm 153. 15.3. Exodus 19.5. Now, Romans 9, 18 to 23, so then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to the molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter, listen to this, has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? What are these saying about God? 
It's his. It's his, and he can do with what's his what he wants. That's called property rights. Something we should be familiar with. It's his. And so if it's his, do we have the right to question it? He can do with it what he wants. Okay, so that's premise number one, I think, that we have to underscore is that. Now, as finite creatures, this is the other part of this, as finite creatures, we're ill-suited to be able to make a a morality judgment on a being that is all-knowing and all-powerful. So if you think about this for a second, not only is the earth all his and he spoke into nothingness and created everything, it all belongs to him and he can do with it as he pleases. Who's going to keep him in check? Even if he did something you didn't approve of. That's Paul's point there in Romans 9. Are, are you going to put him on the, on the hot seat? Are you going to be the one to ask him questions? Who is going to be that person that's going to stand there and quiz him? as if they're supposed to get an answer from him or a response. This is his interaction with Job at the end of the book of Job. Well, where were you when I laid the foundations? You tell me. What did it sound like when the angels sung when I created the earth? What did that sound like? Do you know? Well, tell me. You must have knowledge, of course. It's hilarious if you really read it that way because it seems very sarcastic. And I like to think that God has a sense of humor. Um, so, <laughs> um, look at Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. Read that, somebody. Daniel 4.35 That's Nebuchadnezzar, by the way, who's saying that. One of the most powerful kings that's ever lived. Eventually humbled by the Lord and coming to realize, oh, I'm not as bad as I thought I was. Um, So, yeah, um, as finite creatures, we're, we're just not suited to be able to ask of God what he's done and challenge him in some sort of way. Now, another thing that we need to know about this or need to understand about the conquest is that total annihilation, or harim, was practiced in Jericho, I, and with the Amalekites in 1 Samuel 15. So it's not practiced everywhere in um, the conquest of Canaan. It is practiced in a couple of cities. It is commanded of the children of Israel. And they actually really only execute it once uh, in Jericho, in I, they sneak off with some stuff, and then in, uh, in 1 Samuel 15, this is what gets Saul in big, big trouble. In fact, the kingdom torn away from him because he doesn't do exactly what he's supposed to do with the animals and with the king and all of that. And so the, the children of Israel, it seems, were either a bit squeamish or a bit greedy about doing this kind of thing, and they didn't necessarily obey the Lord in what he had commanded. But Um, they were commanded on a couple of occasions to actually practice this level of execution to kill everything, man, woman, child, uh, beast of the field, everything, burn every house to the ground. Everything was to be utterly destroyed. But it was in these three places. And so the point is that it's not everywhere. Now, let's further complicate this just a little bit. In an earlier conquest of the Midianites, we see in Numbers... Um, not all the population was killed. They were told to kill a lot of the people, but not everyone. So then we get Numbers 31, 17, and 18. Uh, I feel obligated to read this. <laughs> so it's, it's hard, but it, it, it is here. Now therefore, kill every male among the little ones. Kill every woman who has known man by lying with him. 
But all the young girls who have not known man by lying with him keep alive for yourselves. Hard to take. Yeah. Um, Now, there are some things, too, that I would say about uh, the Israelites taking someone into slavery, whenever you see that. Um, The Israelites, you you have to remember that the, the abolitionist movement was born out of Christianity. The trajectory for Christianity and abolition of slaves, which we find unconscionable today, began with Judaism. But Judaism is starting in the midst of a society that is utterly pagan. Think days of Noah all around Israel. And yet you've got Israel here in the midst of it. So Israel taking a slave into their uh, camp is uh, much better than it would be for that slave in any other society. And that society, I'm not saying this solves the problem, all right, or this is very easy to talk about. I'm just saying that the trajectory for the abolitionist movement is set all the way back in the early beginning pages of the Bible. And so where we end up with Christ is where we, we see slavery as unconscionable. But we got there because God set their trajectory back early on in the beginning pages of the Bible. If anything, what I think that says is that God is patient and long-suffering, knowing that in the midst of a twisted and crooked world that is absolutely deplorable, he's setting the course for what will one day make slavery unthinkable, which would be Christianity. Does that make sense? I'm not saying that that solves every question, right? But, but um, I think we do need to think about that uh, as part of it. Um, now, um, where am I? Um, a distinction is drawn between the treatment of the heterogeneous Canaanites and other captive peoples. So there's this, uh, some people in the world would say that what's happening here is mass genocide, that God's advocating for mass genocide, but it seems to be the case that um, it's actually a a, uh, particular cities that are made up of a heterogeneous group of people. So if we look there in um, uh, Deuteronomy 20, um, particularly verse 17, but Deuteronomy verse, uh, chapter 20, verses 10 to 18. Somebody read that out loud. The, uh, as part of the conquest, you see there in verse 17, the cities are made up of a, multiple, of a multitude of, of groups of people. And you see in 18 that it's not about their race or their ethnicity. 
um, but uh, explicitly about their sin against the Lord, um, so which, is a, which is actually a, a pretty significant point. It doesn't quite meet up with the appropriate definition of uh, a, a mass genocide. Now, the conquest of the promised land, another thing we have to understand about it, the, pro- the, the conquest of the promised land was an act of divine judgment after incredible patience. It was an act of divine judgment after incredible patience. Uh, read uh, Genesis chapter 15, verse 16. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Stereo. <laughs> yeah, we're reading at the same time. It was, it was great. It was like synchronized. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So the, remember, this is God's promise to Abraham back in Genesis chapter 15. What he's telling him about the land is that you, this is yours, but you're, it's, not, it's not yours technically. It's going to be your, aunt, your progeny, your kids, your great-great-great-great-grandchildren are going to come to possess it. But the reason that you're not going to possess it is because the people that live there, their sin is not full yet. So we're talking 400 years of patience that God bears with the Amorites and all of the ites and bites that are in the land at the time before he finally does send in the Jews to... Uh, enact a divine judgment against the people that are in that land. Um, Now, um, the Israelite conquest of of Canaan, uh, I think I have two put up there on accident. Um, The, the, uh, the, the, sorry, I'm, I lost my place now. The Israelite conquest of Canaan is described as an act of divine punishment on an extremely corrupt society. So just think about this for just a second. A lot of times what, we, what we're thinking of is Joshua and the children of Israel marching into Tuscaloosa, and you'd naturally be thinking of all the uh, Tusca, Tuscaloosites uh, that you know, and how sweet and kind they are, and uh, Joshua and the children of Israel devoting the entire city to destruction. That's not, it's not precisely what we find is true of the people that they're marching in against. Look at, um, uh, again, I lost my place. Look at, look at Leviticus 18, 24 to 25. Do not make yourselves unclean by any of these things, for by all these the nations I am driving out before you have become unclean. And the land became unclean, so that I punished its iniquity, and the land vomited out all its inhabitants. This is in the context of sexual sin. Um, Leviticus 20, 22-24, You shall therefore keep all my statutes and all my, and all my rules and do them, that the land where I am bringing you and, and to live may not vomit you out. And you shall not walk in the customs of the nation that I am driving out before you. For they did all these things, and therefore I detested them. But I have said to you, you shall inherit their land, and I will give it, give it to you to possess a land flowing with milk and honey. I am the Lord your God, who has separated you from the peoples. Deuteronomy 9, uh, 5. Not because of your righteousness or, your up, or the uprightness of your heart, are you going in to possess their land? But because of the wickedness of the nations, the Lord your God is driving them out from before you, and that he may confirm the word that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and to Jacob. Um, so on and on it goes, depicting the kinds of things that are going on in the land that they're going in to conquer, um, that this is a divine punishment that he is enacting on a group of people that are incredibly wicked, that are sacrificing their own children to God, the gods of Molech, that are doing all kinds of abominable things, that they're coming, coming, that the children of Israel are coming in to actually judge. Now, throughout Israel's history, this is another thing that we have to keep in mind: is throughout Israel's history, uh, God has judged with divine impartiality. What does that mean? 
Yeah. He doesn't care who you are. In fact, his own children, he judged. How did he judge them? Well, with Assyria, with Babylon, with the Philistines, with a number of other people in their area. He judged them because they did what was evil. And all of the warnings that he gives to them in Deuteronomy, Moses calls it like it is. And he says, look, if this is what you do, if you go into the land and you don't drive them out and you take on their gods and you, uh, you don't revere the Lord and his commandments, then I'm going to kick you out of the land. It's going to vomit you out. And you're going to be captured by people that are going to come in and invade. I mean, uh, the Deuteronomy passage that I've got there, Deuteronomy 28 Um, You can actually read Deuteronomy 8, starting in verse 25, all the way through the end of the passage. The whole thing is a list of curses of what what God is going to do to his own children if they don't obey him. So it's divine impartiality. What it tells us is that God actually judges the world. Period. Why? Because he owns it. It's his and the fullness thereof. If we begin with that, that it's his, and he can do with it what he wants, then it becomes less problematic when everyone else is judged. You would almost expect that to happen, that the hand of God would come in and judge them, particularly for their sins. But I want to get to just uh, some key, I think, takeaways from Christians as we start to wrestle with this. Um, First is that Christians can readily acknowledge that the Old Testament text itself is not claiming an ideal or ultimate ethic. We're not saying about the Old Testament that this is the pinnacle of morality here. In fact, Jesus makes that same claim in Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, I didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets. I came to fulfill them. Meaning that God has set the trajectory in the law for what holiness is and has begun to teach his people on what basis he judges individuals. And it's not until Christ that we, well, we should have understood it earlier, I suppose, but it's not until Christ that we get exposed the fullness of the law there in Christ. You've heard it said, don't commit adultery, but do you lust in your heart? Because if you do, you've already committed adultery. You've heard it said, don't commit murder, but are you getting angry with your brother in your heart? Well, then you've already murdered him. So we see that the trajectory that God set early on is completed in Christ and fulfilled. So the ultimate and complete ethic that we live by is that which is shown to us and demonstrated in Christ, which is built on the foundation of the law laid down in the Old Testament. So that's one thing that we have to understand. None of us are claiming that the Old Testament is the law that we should uh, practice everything by. We're going to stone all of the atheists and the un- and unbelievers. Are we going to are we going to stone anyone that's that doesn't practice our sexual ethic? Of course not. That's not what we believe to be true. But um, we do believe that it forms the basis on which God judges the world. And we see that completed in Christ. Second thing I think that it teaches us is that God's holiness and human sinfulness are far more central to the Bible's message than our culture is willing to recognize. That the entire Bible is pointing you to God's holiness and man's sinfulness. The entire scriptures are demonstrating the disparity between God and man. And I think part of what helps me, I think, as I, as I wrestle with the Canaanite conquest and all of these kinds of things, is knowing that one day we're all going to stand before the Lord. And one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord, that Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. And I think all of us will go, that makes the Canaanite conquest make a whole lot more sense. When we see the holiness of God, remember Isaiah when he comes in contact with the holiness of God there in the temple. He just starts spouting sin out, <laughs> just starts confessing it. Remember John, when he sees a vision of the resurrected Christ, his friend, by the way, but the resurrected Christ, he falls over as though dead because of the glory of the Lord. So I think that makes it make a lot more sense. 
when we understand that. But we should probably understand it's far more central to the Bible than we're willing to recognize. And some people are trying to do away with the idea that God is propitiating his wrath in Christ on the cross. Um, Some people are trying to do away with that now. um, And I think that's uh, to our peril. Um, Third thing, God took on flesh to face the fury of his own wrath on behalf of his people. So we don't serve a God who inflicts wrath and doesn't understand the pain that it causes. I think this is the most important thing in the Canaanite conquest is, do you understand that the, the same wrath or the, the, uh, uh, a version of the wrath that the city of Jericho felt from the hands of the Israelites, Christ himself felt to the fullness on the cross. So imagine how distraught you are over the people of I, and now imagine the only sinless, guiltless man to ever walk the face of the planet faces the full brunt of the wrath of God for us. Next, all of us deserve God's justice, and none of us deserve God's mercy. All of us deserve God's justice, and none of us deserve God's mercy. This is the situation we're in after Adam. None of us deserve his mercy. Next, I think this is a huge part that we have to wrap our minds around. The conquest of the promised land is a recapitulation of Adam in the Garden of Eden. Conquest of the land of Canaan is a recapitulation of Adam in the Garden of Eden. They are to be fruitful and multiply, fill the land, and subdue it and have dominion over it. To keep out all the things that are evil. In other words, purge the evil from among them. That's what they're charged with doing. Essentially, Israel represents the new Adam as they walk into the promised land. Purging the land from all its evil. Maintaining purity. Faithfulness to God's law. Do they do it? The easy one. Do they do it? No, they don't do it. Of course not. They walk in, they don't even complete the driving out. And ultimately, what happens? Just as Adam was kicked out east of Eden, so the children of Israel are kicked out east of the promised land. But then what does Jesus do? We see the new Adam come in and actually walk through the steps of Israel, going back, coming back out of Egypt in Matthew, going back into the wilderness for 40 days this time, goes back across, back into the promised land and begins conquering the promised land with the coming kingdom. And he says to the people, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is a fulfillment of what Jeremiah is told in Jeremiah 34 and all the prophets before him. I'm going to replace your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh so that you'll be able to actually follow my law. And so Jesus is saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Come under and submit to God's reign once and for all. And there he does it. He conquers the promised land with the gospel. He installs his kingdom on earth. And he creates for himself an actual people who are fully submitting to his kingdom and his rule and his reign and can actually, with the advent of the Holy Spirit, obey his law and then begin to live that out. And how does his kingdom then begin to spread and him begin to conquer the earth? How does that happen? How does it happen? We're it. How, how do we spread? Sharing the gospel. The gospel is a Canaanite conquest of sorts, but it's saving people from destruction instead of devoting them to destruction. So what what Israel failed to do, Christ then does, and what we need to see first and foremost is that the moving in of the children of Israel into the promised land is a recapitulation of what Adam was told to do. Keep out all unclean things. And he couldn't do it. Neither could the children of Israel Jesus was the one who did it. Then last, the destruction of the Canaanites is a picture of the final judgment. 
The destruction of the Canaanites is a picture of the final judgment. I want you to look at Acts 10.42, starting there. The last three passages here. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. So there's a fair warning. We're to go about the world giving them fair warning. You're going to be judged one day. And you can avoid harem. You can avoid being dedicated to destruction by submitting your life to Christ and his rule and his reign now. Like Rahab coming under the rule and the reign of God's kingdom. 1 Peter 4, 5, But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. But then let's look at what happens in Revelation 14, verses 17 to 20. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has the authority over, over the fire, and he called uh, uh, with a loud voice to the one who has who had the sharp sickle, put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine, uh, um, from the vine of the earth, for it is the grapes, uh, for the grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. So what happens to the children or to the people in the, in the land of Canaan is a microcosm of what's going to happen in the end. You've been given the gospel to proclaim it, to warn people of coming judgment so that they can repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's exactly what we've been put here to do. Um, questions? I'm sure there has to be some. Um, it's where we get our word recap. It's a, it's a um, do it again. It means to, to, to do it again. What's that? Back, back to the head. Back to the head is what it means, technically. It's, it's going, going back to the head. Recap. Going back to the head. Back to the start. Starting over. I'm, I'm still not being clear, I think. serpents in there that deceives him, that Adam is told to have dominion over the earth, to subdue it, to tame it. Um, The snake that comes into the Garden of Eden is depicted as an unclean thing, as an unclean animal. Um, And and the beast has dominion over him. So the the beast actually is the one that deceives Eve and Adam, uh, having dominion over him. So he doesn't complete his task. This is why, actually, in the book of Revelation, why John says that even though the gates are open in heaven or in the new earth, that no unclean thing will enter it because Christ is on the throne. He's keeping out all the unclean things. Um, so it's, a, it's what Adam failed to do. Well, Christ is the new Adam comes in and is basically kind of beginning the story over again. And you're watching... Um, this Adam actually make all things new and actually uh, have dominion over the earth through the kingdom of God, installing the kingdom of God in a sinful world, essentially. I am told about a serpent. That is what I know. (laughs) I am told in Genesis 3 about a serpent. I have no other knowledge of any other critters or what kind of creatures they were, but I know that the themes that are presented in this story, the way a Jew reads that is that snake is wicked and is an unclean thing, and we're not, we're not supposed to touch those. Um, Peter sees this, the blanket falling down, and it's filled with snakes, and they're not supposed to touch those. Those are, those are unclean animals. And so any Jew reading that is already going, wait, the serpent is crafty, he's deceiving, he's that's an unclean animal to begin with. Adam is supposed to have dominion and tame this whole thing, and he actually ends up being dominated by the beast itself. So that's, that's pretty clearly, I think that's 
that's pretty clear reading of, of uh, Genesis chapter 3. Um, now, there's probably a lot more things that a Jew would read into that that I don't, but. So are you counting those two, Adam in the garden and the conquest, as like sin? No, I'm, I'm saying that the people of Israel are a kingdom of priests. They're made that at, at Sinai. Remember, we talked about that a few weeks ago, but they're, they're made a kingdom of priests to the rest of the nations. The nations are supposed to come to them, and they're supposed to be the kind of priests that introduce them to God. So essentially, they're installing God's kingdom on the earth. That's what they're to do. So when they walk into God's place, which is the land, they're to put down God's kingdom and bring everyone into it, essentially, is what happens. Uh, Submit everyone to God's rule and his reign under God's king. Um, They fail to do this because they don't even keep the land free of unclean things. They can't even purge the evil from among them. And so, uh, and they can't fulfill what we're talking about here, a harem or anything like that. And so um, what they fail to do, then Christ comes in and does, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and he actually installs God's kingdom on the earth where people are now submitting to God's rule and his reign by coming to faith in Christ. So he does what Israel failed to do, what Adam in the beginning failed to do. All of it looked a little bit different as it went, but uh, essentially... And to have dominion and to... And yep. Israel failed to wipe out the unclean in the promised land. Precisely. So Precisely. They didn't, do the they didn't do the weeding of the garden. That's exactly right. That's right. Yep. I know a lot of people probably have to go at 7.30, but Timothy... It's sin that he's judging, not not a ethnicity. Right. right, that's right. Whereas Hitler's, if you want to call that judging, Hitler would be judging a, a particular ethnicity or a people group because of the people group, the Jews. But God is judging the sin, and that's precisely what he's brought. Um, the children of Israel in the land to do. By the way, uh, if you look throughout the scriptures, when God judges a group of people, he nearly always does it by the most powerful military on the planet at the time. And that is true of, uh, of a lot of instances, not least of which his own children, Babylon and Assyria, both are the most powerful people on the planet, most powerful militaries on the planet at the time. Um, Christ is judged by the Jews? No, he's judged by the Romans. Romans being the most powerful military at the time with the most ruthless form of execution, they put him on the cross. Um, he, faces this, the, he faces this, the fury of God's wrath, which typically is manifested. Obviously, natural disasters and things like that are told to us throughout the prophets, but he, he, he typically manifests his judgment against a nation with another nation, the most powerful one, coming in to judge them militarily. Um, so, not least of which his own son. We can deal with some more of these things next week, but let's pray. Heavenly Father, so, such a deep and complicated topic and, and so difficult, and I know this does not answer every question and maybe even creates a few new ones, but we, um, at the end, we just trust. We know that we don't, we don't get every answer, and we're not supposed to have every answer, and if we had every answer, we don't think we could handle it. We know we couldn't, and that's why you don't give it to us, and so in the end, what we're left to do is to look back at our own history, look back at what you have done for us, and to know that you're good. And we can see that in spades. You have, com- you have committed yourself um, to us as a people through the blood of your Son, Christ, and we are beneficiaries through no merit of our own. Uh, there's nothing more that testifies to your goodness than that. But going back into the Old Testament and looking at all the many things that you've done before, time and time again, responding to your people in love and 
in spite of the fact that they don't deserve it, you've been faithful and long-suffering and patient and kind. But yet you are just and righteous. And we do have within our minds and within our hearts the gospel of truth that spares people from coming judgment. So please give us the boldness to give that to other people that they may know whether they believe or not, at least that they are warned and told. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.